Welcome back to Longmont Church of the Nazarene online on what has been a, another warm summer day. Just a couple of things I'd like to remind you of quickly. First of all, we are having worship service on Sunday mornings in the church parking lot. We meet at 9 a.m. Uh, we would ask you to bring your own lawn chair. Um, an umbrella would be good. Uh, it's pretty sunny by that time of the day, and, and a water bottle, and your mask, and uh, come join us if you feel safe and comfortable in doing so. also want you to know that we are having prayer times on Thursday evening at 6.30 in the parking lot as well. There's a, a shady s- spot on the west side of the parking lot. It's easy for us to maintain proper social distancing, and so we get together. And pray, and as I'm sure you are all aware, there are any number of pressing issues that we need to be praying about right now as affects the church, our community, um, our state, and our country. So if you're so inclined and, again, would feel safe and comfortable in doing so, we would encourage you to join us for prayer time at 630 on Thursday evenings. I'm beginning this week a, a new series. Uh, it will go, well, 10 weeks because it's, it's on the Ten Commandments. Um, and we'll be looking at the first of those Ten Commandments today. Um, you'll find that, uh, the list of the Ten Commandments that I'll be preaching from in Exodus chapter 20. They're listed in verses 3 through 17. Our text today will be verses 2 and 3, if you want to find that place in your Bibles. But before I begin, I'd like us to join together in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of this day that you have given us, as each day, I believe, is a gift. I thank you for your faithful presence in our lives, for your work in our world, for your grace, for your mercy, for your kindness, your patience, for your everlasting love. I thank you, Father, that we can come to you with the stuff of life, be it the good things, the things we enjoy, the things that bring us happiness, or the things we struggle with, the troubles, the trials, the temptations, knowing, Lord God, that you understand and that when we pray, you hear and answer, that you come alongside us, that we can enter the throne room where we find mercy and grace and help in our time of need because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. And Lord God, that the Ten Commandments are as relative and meaningful today as the day you gave them on stone tablets to Moses so long ago. Father, may um, we be reminded of these commandments as we work through them in the next, in the, in the next several weeks. Um, imprint them on our minds and our hearts. Help us to understand the importance of living them out. And then, Father, we do lift to you um, our nation, our state. Um, We're still dealing with the effects of the pandemic. Lord, we know the restrictions that we're living under right now, uh, social distancing, mask wearing, that sort of thing. And Lord God, we know there's still people struggling with this disease. Uh, Some are barely impacted by it, others more seriously. 
Certainly we would pray for your healing touch on those who, um, Lord God, are, are experiencing it in a, in a deeper, more life-impacting way. We also pray, Lord, that um, this thing will come to an end. It will wear itself out, burn itself out, whatever needs to happen for this come to come to an end and for us to get back into some sort of normal rhythm, whatever that will look like for us. I'm, I'm not sure that we'll ever completely go back to the way it was before, but Lord God, we'd love to, to know that this thing isn't hanging over our heads. And I, and I pray for the leadership of our country as they deal with these issues as well as other things going on in our country. We know there are still cities where there is violence and destruction. And Lord God, we pray that the peace of Christ would rule over those places and that the forces of evil that are behind those things, that destruction and violence, would be driven back. And peace and civility would return to those cities again. Bless those police officers, men and women who are having to deal face-to-face with these circumstances. Lord, give them wisdom. Keep them safe. Help them, Lord, to do their duty well. And Lord God, um, we thank you for them and all that they do to serve us. Again, Father, we're, we're grateful for your presence in our lives and in our world. We pray again that you would speak to us through your word today, and we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This first commandment, uh, I don't know about you, but I think for many, may be the most difficult one for us to keep. Uh, I think especially as Americans, with all the things that are out there to attract us, to call for our time and energy and affection and attention, we live in a land that's blessed, we enjoy so many things that you know, only dreamed of by people in many places on our planet. Uh, we really, by comparison to most people, live a, a luxurious lifestyle. And we have our recreations and our interests and, and our hobbies and our pastimes and the things we invest in. And I think that's one reason why this first commandment is, is so appropriate to us. I have a number I want you to remember. Here it is. Listen closely. That number is one. I like the number one. It's simple. It's uncomplicated. It's a singular kind of number. In fact, singular means one. I guess you could say that one stands alone. I was pretty good at using one in math class. Um, Adding one was easy. Subtracting one was easy. Multiplying and dividing by one was easy. Think about how important the number one is in our lives. We're all one of a kind. We have one life to live. We live one day at a time. We are born one time. We die one time. Many of us have a one and only, and life often permits us only one chance to do some things. And of course, 
We all know how nice it is to be able to say, we're number one. Did you know that one is an important number to God? It is, and we need to understand why, because one relates very much to who God is and speaks to what our relationship with him should be. Which brings us to our text, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. And it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse verse 2, the first verse I read, is God's reminder to the people of how graphically and forcefully he has already displayed his one and onlyness by delivering the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And in that, the Lord demonstrated his absolute superiority over all the false gods of Egypt. The ten plagues God had sent upon Egypt struck at the heart of their the very heart of their pagan worship and showed their gods to be no gods at all. Egypt's gods were very much bound up with the forces of nature. And so, to prove his one and onlyness, he demonstrates through the plagues his power over all the gods of Egypt. And so I want to I want to li- tell you the list the plague and then the gods of Egypt that were, let's say, defeated or overcome or proven false through this plague. First of all, was the Nile was turned to blood. And the gods impacted by this, the Egyptian gods, were Hopi, also known as Apis, the bull god, who was the god of the Nile, Isis, who was also, Isis was the goddess of the Nile, Knum, the ram god, who was the guardian of the Nile. Then the plague of the frogs. The Egyptian god proven false was Heket, the goddess of birth who had a frog's head. And then the the plague of gnats proved false the god Set, who was the god of dust and dust storms. The plague of flies proved false Ra, the sun god, um, Uachit, I guess that's how you pronounce it, possibly represented by the fly. The death of livestock proved false the god Hathor, or excuse me, the goddess Hathor, who's, who had a cow's head. And again, Apis, the bull god, who was a symbol of fertility. Boils proved false the god Sekhmet. Goddess with power over disease, and Sunu, the pestilence god, and Isis, the healing goddess. And, and you may notice as I go through these, sometimes um, the, the plague impacts uh, one of the gods more than one time. Hail, the god Nut, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops and fertility, and Seth, the god of dust, and desert storms. The plague of lo- locusts, again, not the sky goddess, 
Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. Darkness, prove false Ra, prove false the god Ra, the sun god. Horus, a sun god, not a sky goddess, and Hathor, a sky goddess. And then the death of the firstborn son, prove false men, the god of reproduction. Hecate, the goddess who attended women at childbirth. Isis, the goddess who protected children. And Pharaoh's firstborn son, who was considered himself a god. So all the gods of Egypt, through the plagues, were proved not to be gods at all. As a result, God had every right to demand Israel, the Israelites' exclusive loyalty. God still has that right. For since the time of Moses, he has put on an even greater display of his only godliness in the life of his son, Jesus Christ, who healed the sick, made the lame walk, caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, cleansed the leper, cast out demons, fed thousands with practically nothing, calmed the storm, walked on water, laid down his life, shed his blood, and rose again in victory over the tomb, death, sin, hell, all the forces of darkness, and yes, even Satan himself. What more convincing evidence would one need of the one and onlyness of God? Which brings us to verse 3, the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. A couple of quick definitions here. No other gods, small g, small g gods. Here's how it's defined. A being or object believed to have more than natural attributes and powers and to require man's worship. And then, no other gods before me. We def- before me, let's define that. It means side by side with me or in addition to me. You shall have no other gods, small g, Before me, side by side with me, or in addition to me. That's what God is saying here. God did not expect Israel Israel would give up on him. That was not the problem. God is not trying to cover himself in case the God in the universe next door somehow grows powerful enough to move in on his territory and take some of his subjects away. This is not a situation of warring kings or warring gods out there somewhere. There may be more than one universe, but, there, but if there is, the one true God rules over it too. No, God knew that the danger lay in the direction of giving equal allegiance to other gods. And again, that takes us back to our definition. God's small g. And this did turn out to be a problem, despite God's command to the contrary. The Baals and at various times other gods were worshipped in conjunction with God. See, the people wanted to, in essence, cover all their bases. This was disgusting and repulsive to God. People would worship at a Baal shrine and then trot themselves down the street to the temple to worship God. 
And God had given, not only in this commandment, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 through 15 and 17, very explicit instructions regarding worship of him alone. Here's what he says. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 through 15 and verse 17. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow the other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Did you catch that phrase, serve him only? Serve means to give service and respect due to, to comply with the demands or commands of. And only means exclusively, solely, without another, singly, alone. So what God is saying here is we are to give him service and respect. We're to comply with his commands and his demands his and his only. He, he is the only one. He's the only God. He's exclusive. He's solely the one, without another, singly the one that we are to worship. And we are told that God is a jealous God. And if we ignore this requirement, we put ourselves in danger. His anger, it says, will burn against us. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to deal with the anger of God. Ron Mel, in his book, The Tender Commandments, writes this. Our number one task as believers is to make sure that nothing, no small g God, person, object, task, duty, or pleasure, comes before him in our priorities, in our plans, and in our affections. You know, we all face or have faced the temptation to place one of the other small g gods before God. You may be saying, well, no problem, Pastor. I have no other other gods before God. I worship and I serve no other. I understand that one describes God. Well, here's my concern, and it would be this. Do you serve the one true God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, Or have you remolded him into something that is more agreeable to you, that that fits you a little better? Here's what I mean. This is is from an article entitled, A Mush God by Nicholas Van Hoffman. And he says this. The mush God has been known to appear uh, to millionaires on golf courses. He appears to politicians at ribbon-cutting ceremonies and to clergymen speaking the invocation on national TV at either the Democratic or Republican conventions. The mush god has no theology to speak of, being a cream of wheat divinity. The mush god has no particular credo, no tenets of faith, nothing that would make it difficult for a believer or non-believer alike to lower one's head when the temporary chairman tells us that the reverend rabbi, father, or mufti, or so-and-so will lead us in an innocuous, harmless prayer For this God of public occasions is not a jealous God. You can even invoke him to start a hooker's convention and he or she or it won't be offended. 
God of the Rotary, God of the Optimist, Protector of the Buddy System. The Mush God is the Lord of secular ritual, of the necessary but hypocritical forms and formalities that hush the divisive and the derisive. The Mush God is a serviceable God whose laws are chiseled not on tablets but written in sand, open to amendment, qualification, and erasure. This is a God that will compromise with you, make allowances, and declare all wars holy and all pieces hallowed. The Mush God is the God of no standards and no expectations. He is totally inoffensive to all and is, in fact, the God of the rubber stamp. He puts his approval on whatever you choose to believe about him. You might call him wishy-washy. On the other hand, maybe you serve the one and only God who's not quite got what it takes to get the job done. In a way, he's the wimp God. James Montgomery Boyce writes these words about the strength of our God. He says, Speaking of the weakness and ineffectiveness of many Christians, they have forgotten what God is like and what he promises to do for those who trust him. Ask an average Christian to talk about God. After getting past the expected answers, you will find that his God is a little God of vacillating sentiments. He's a God who would like to save the world, but cannot. He would like to restrain evil, but somehow he finds it beyond his power. So he is withdrawn into semi-retirement, being willing to give good advice in a grandfatherly sort of way. But for the most part, he has left his children to fend for themselves in a dangerous environment. He goes on to say, such a God is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not weak. He is strong. He is almighty. Nothing happens without his permission or apart from his purposes, even evil. Nothing disturbs or puzzles him. His purposes are always accomplished. The one and only God is neither a mush God or a wimp God. Far from it. So let's see who the one God is. Because you see, if you're not serving the God of Scripture, then you are serving another God who comes before him. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 31, the God that the Apostle Paul reveals is the one invisible almighty God who is unique in all of history. He is the God of Scripture from which Paul has gained his knowledge by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul says. Again, Acts 17, verses 24 through 31. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So, what does this passage tell us about God? Well, in verse 24, it tells us that he is the creator of all things, the ruler of all things. He is spirit. Verse 25 tells us he needs nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. In fact, he is the provider of all things, including life itself. In verse 26, it tells us that he is sovereign over times, events, and places. In verse 27, it tells us that God wants to be known by us, to be in relationship with us, and that he is omnipresent. In verse 28, we learn that he is our creator, our heavenly father. He is the source, the power behind life. In fact, he is, in fact, life himself. In verse 29, it tells us he is radically different from any man's concept of God. He can neither be seen nor touched and is wholly unlike us. In verse 30, it tells us he is patient, but he has a standard that we all fall short of. And in verse 31, it tells us he judges with justice and he has the power to overcome death. Is that enough for you? If not, you want to know more? Well, look at Jesus. He is God and himself said, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So when we look at Jesus, what do we see? Well, we see that he is holy. Jesus was sinless, unblemished. He's called the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus is compassionate, kind, loving, gentle, gracious, patient, merciful. We see this evidence in how he interacted with people and his willingness to reach out, to touch, to heal, to provide. The record of what Jesus did, according to the gospel writers, is only a part of the story. For In John chapter 21, verse 25, it tells us, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Jesus is forgiving. He said to many, your sins are forgiven. He forgave the thief on the cross and said of his persecutors, even as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do do not know what they are doing. He shed his blood and suffered death so that our sins could be forgiven. He hates sin. In 1 John 3, 8, it tells us that the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The seriousness of sin demanded the death penalty which Jesus paid through his death on the cross. Jesus loves righteousness. Matthew 3.15 says, At his baptism we are told that he came through his baptism to fulfill all righteousness. And in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying that he did not come to weaken the law, the commandments that God had given us, but rather to take them to a new and deeper level. Jesus is powerful. Look at the miracles he performed, miracles over sickness, disease, demonic activity, control of the elements, feeding the crowds. He rose 
from the dead. He raised others from the dead. And he is still the one and only. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That, folks, describes our one and only God. And I want to close again from a selection from Ron Mel's book, The Tender Commandments. He says, why in the world does he make such a point of having no other gods before him? What does this command have to do with life in today's world? The reason is very simple. He wants to be your God. He wants to care for you. And he knows that no one or nothing can care for you better than he. He is a faithful God, committed to us even when we fail, even when we make mistakes. He loves us and he will never say, I'm done with you. I'm going to turn to someone else I care about more than you. He will never do that. Why should I ever want to put anything in front of him? Why should I tolerate other gods in my life? Why should I look for other saviors? Why should I serve lesser lords? He promised to provide me everything I need. My life has completely changed. So why not tell the whole world what a mess I was in when he found me? But Jesus came along and took away my embarrassment and shame. Oh, how I love him. That's the reason we can hold out hope for others. That's the reason we can say, put God first and he'll cover your past. If God has forgiven me, he can forgive you. How could I not want to put such a God first? And that's exactly what God is saying in this command. Put me first. I I want to be the one and only in your life. And my question for you today is, is he? Is he the one and only God in your life? Pray with me. Father, thank you, uh, first of all, that you have given us rules to live by. You have said, if you want to live in a way that pleases me, here's how you do it. And the first thing is, you will have no other gods before me. Serve no other. Give your allegiance, your affection, your devotion to no other. And I know, again, Father, as, as I prayed earlier, as we talked about earlier, This may be one of the greatest temptations in our life. We have so much in our world that can distract us, lead us away, call for our attention, our time, our energy, our allegiance, our love, our devotion. We can invest ourselves in things that, well, they're no better than the images of stone or wood or gold or silver that were mentioned in Deuteronomy. No no different or no better than those things that God chastised the people of Israel for. And Father, we, they may not be called Baal or Ashtaroth or Molech or any of those gods of the Canaanites that the, the people of Israel were warned not to, to worship, but they have names of their own. And many of us know what they are because we've struggled with Worshipping those things. 
Father, today, call us back. Call us back to make you the one and only. Lord, we've seen in the scripture who you are, not only in what, what Paul said about you, but in how Jesus revealed you through his life as he came to live among us, to show us your great heart, to destroy the works of the devil, to give his life on the cross, and then in victory to raise from the dead, to defeat sin, death, hell, and Satan himself. You, Lord God, are worthy of being first, our one and only, of our worship, our devotion, our allegiance, our affections, our time, our energy, our talent. And may you be, may you be the one and only, the only God in our lives. May we serve you and you alone. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. No one does a better job than you do. Thank you for being there always. You are ever present. Thank you for knowing us, even the things we hide from everyone else and loving us anyway. Thank you for your redemptive work through Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thank you that we can live in relationship with you because of what Christ has done for us. We give you praise. We give you thanks. And we, we determine today to serve and give our allegiance to you and to you alone. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for being with us today. May God bless you this week. Go in grace and peace.